welcome back to the Expanding the Continuum podcast. On this episode, we will be discussing trauma-informed care, which seeks to realize the widespread impact of trauma and understand paths for recovery, recognize the signs and symptoms of trauma in patients, families, and staff, integrate knowledge about trauma into policies, procedures, and practices, and actively avoid re-traumatization. We're going to touch on trauma-informed approaches to our services and how we are working with survivors of gender-based violence and folks living with HIV. We will also discuss healing in the context of trauma-informed approaches and the future of care and services. I'm Ashley Sly with the National Network to End Domestic Violence. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Lydia Guy-Ortiz and Yeshua Ventura from the Washington State Department of Health. Welcome to both of you. Um, why don't we start with both of you sharing a little bit about yourselves and how you um, initially started incorporating trauma-informed care practices into your work. So I'm going to go first. I am Lydia Guy-Ortiz. That is a really interesting question because if we talk about trauma-informed and when I started incorporating it into my work, I am probably going to date myself by going and talking about rape trauma syndrome, which was a diagnosis before PTSD. And so when I came into doing the work, there was always the understanding that individuals that we were working with, survivors, were deeply impacted by the trauma that they were experiencing. And we spent many, many years trying to have professionals and other people acknowledge the impact on trauma for sexual assault survivors, for DV survivors, for trafficking survivors, and others. So I know it's a long answer to not answer a question that says, I've always done it that way. Like, I don't know how to do this type of work without acknowledging trauma. Hi, uh, my name is Yoshua. My pronouns are he, el. Um, trauma-informed approaches or trauma-informed care didn't really come into my life until I switched careers from being a clinical art therapist to a peer support specialist um, when I moved to the Pacific Northwest. And in my previous incarnation as a clinical art therapist, um, PTSD and trauma had always been something that was taught as part of the curriculum, obviously, and um, used within the practice. But it wasn't until I moved out here and specifically was uh, worked at Cascade AIDS Project where trauma-informed care and trauma-informed approaches was, were, was presented in a way that was really aligned with social justice. Um, and at that time was when I really kind of understood the the, the true function of trauma-informed care. Um, also, it, it, it opened up my own experience with trauma in a way that I hadn't realized I had was living with. And, um, and then being a peer, which I believe is trauma-informed care, period, because as a peer, we are working with other people with the shared lived experience. And because we have that shared lived experience, that alone provides the foundation for trauma work or trauma-informed work. Um, and, and so those are the places where that's how I've kind of built this relationship with trauma-informed approaches and care. Thank you both for sharing that. I think that's a great kind of foundation to where we're going. And I think you started to actually answer my next question, um, both of you. Uh, when we're, we think about the work we do with survivors of gender-based violence and people living with HIV or AIDS, um, why do you both think trauma-informed care is important to our service delivery? I think that trauma-informed approaches, not just trauma-informed care, is integral. There isn't any way to effectively support an individual um, that's living with HIV or survivor of gender-based violence without having a, a very deeply rooted understanding of how trauma affects our biology, how trauma affects our thought process, how trauma affects our decision-making. I can't count the number of times folks looked at a response that someone was, was giving that was either a survivor or a person living with HIV and misinterpreted that person's behavior because they weren't acknowledging 
the fact that it was a survival response. It was, it was, it was them performing something extraordinary based on the trauma that they had survived. But often as professionals, we saw some of these behaviors as disruptive or non-compliant or not adherent. And it's this really root of if we're going to meet people where they are, if we're going to see human beings as fully human, we have to take a trauma-informed approach for these two issues, but for many, many more, if we're actually being honest. I would say that um, when we consider like any kind of services that are being provided to our communities um, that are coming out of a, of a gender-based violence or HIV um, violence space, we need to really consider the positional power that is involved in this, right? So we're talking about systems that are coming from either our government or um, a local health jurisdiction or whatever it may be, but like a structure that is pretty much antithetical to the work that needs to happen in order to really truly support a person that's coming out of that space or in that space, living in that space. Trauma-informed approaches rely on and are grounded in the idea of safety. Um, and in order to create a dynamic of safety for that person to come in and access, right, to connect with and access, we need to have a human way of, of kind of experiencing that, um, a human way of holding that space. And so, you know, being aware of the fact that you're within this system that already is kind of pushing back. It's it's looking at things in a very black and white way, the way that Lydia was speaking about. It's it's judging things. It's it's um it's putting things on a scale and essentially looking at someone that are, is coming from a space like that as less than or not not meeting kind of like societal expectations of of who they should be and how they should be operating in the world. And that goes against the human experience and it goes against um, all the different areas that we come from and are growing up and, and, um, and the relationships and how we've learned how, how to have relationships. So if we can establish a position of trust with the person um, and do that by, you know, being really aware of, of trauma um, and how it impacts and then, you know, being able to meet that person where they're at, um, but doing it from a place that I've been there too, um, that that really speaks to um, providing an opening of trust that generally doesn't happen within the systemic connection. Can I add one thing also? Yeah. Is I really want to call out the need to, when we talk about trauma-informed, to make sure that everyone is recognizing that historical trauma is part of how I'm, I'm defining that, is I've done a lot of work over the years with communities that have tended to be historically marginalized by our mainstream systems, whether those, those, those are communities of color or LGBTQ communities. And so to recognizing that when we're taking a trauma-informed approach, we are truly baking in to our systems, the fact that, you know, as, as groups and as communities, as people, we have been traumatized by the very world in which we move through on a daily basis as folks of color or members of the LGBT community. And so in addition to talking about, you know, services for people living with HIV or services for gender-based violence, I, I really want to be kind of transparent that my trauma-informed analysis has a distinctly um, anti-oppressive um, lens to the way I implement it. Yeah, you both make some really great points and uh, really focusing on the um, systemic impact of trauma and the generational impact of trauma, really trauma across a lifespan and how that impacts the way people come to us, right? Um, their, their responses when they're working with us, like you, you touched on Lydia, like those are trauma responses in the moment and people don't always recognize that. Um, so I think that's such an important thing to kind of highlight. Um, and I think that kind of brings me to my next question around like our connection with survivors. How does trauma-informed care really help us truly connect with people? 
Over the years in which I have, you know, kind of worked doing gender-based violence, I think the most important thing to remember is that we walk with people. As the movement became more professional, I feel like some of that has been lost when we talk about providing services to people. Even when we talk about being trauma-informed is you typically don't say, I'm going to take a trauma-informed approach to talking to my friend. Um, I'm, and I'm not advocating that they're not boundaries or professional boundaries as we're doing our work. But I'm saying when you see your friend in pain, you see somebody who you have a shared life experience with. You see someone who has strengths and abilities as well as deficits. And you take all of those into consideration as you are, you know, problem solving and working through something to help them get what they want or need. And to me, that's kind of, you know, the, the crux of it is we still need to have that ability <laughs> to know that we are not above someone. And, and I, Yeshua mentioned positional power, <laughs> um, that we need to be willing to lay down <laughs> That, that power in the interest of being able to help somebody identify what are the outcomes that they would like um, for, you know, whether it's someone living with HIV or gender-based violence, what are the things that will help them have the type of life <laughs> that they choose, not necessarily what we may have to talk. going to take a minute. Not something that we have necessarily defined as a preferred outcome, but what has that survivor or that person living with HIV defined as a positive outcome? I'm thinking about something that was just recently gifted to me, and um, that's the the idea of, of how this all started in terms of the HIV work, right? So, you know, back when the epidemic first started and, you know, the government was not supporting any side of it, um, the community came together um, and people were meeting up in their homes and figuring out how to get food to people, figuring out how to get medicine to people, like all these, all these different things that are now being done by community partners or local health jurisdictions. These were things that were actually being done in people's homes. None of those people had master's degrees. None of those are like, it wasn't a requirement for them to have some sort of educational structure around their ability to do those things. It was, it was coming from the community facing a severe and tragic need and stepping up to support their community by doing these things. Now it's been professionalized. And when we speak about something being professionalized, then we have to also say that that is coming from a white capitalistic supremacist construct. And so if you are someone that's coming from a space of oppression and you're stepping into this like system that is based on professionalism, how are, is that professionalism going to humanistically support me as a person in suffering? Um, how, is that, how is that professionalism going to hold space for my, my flaws, my fears, my, my trauma? Um, and if it's, if it's really going to be effective, then it's so vital for that awareness around that positional power and stepping out of that positional power and stepping into a, a strength-based humanistic way of looking at an experience so that you can hold space for all the things that come in a person when they step into your room and they're sharing this side of their life, which is so vulnerable. I mean, the courage that it takes, uh, and you know, sometimes it's not even courage, right? Because like, see, people keep saying to me around my story around how courageous I was and all these things. And I'm like, no, I wasn't courageous. It was just survival, right? And I think that's another thing that we need to really consider when speaking about people that are that are living in these spaces is that like we can't necessarily put these labels on them around like them being strong, them being courageous, you know, them being able to make it through. Sometimes people are just surviving through these situations and 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 because when we have those labels on them, then it's harder for us to actually give them the support that they need. And it also stops them prob probably from asking us from that support because they're so used to hearing, oh, you're so strong. You're so, you know, you've been able to get through all this stuff. And the meanwhile, inside the person's like, I don't, I just did what I needed to do. Like I, there was no strength here. There wasn't a connection to that. There wasn't a choice necessarily. And so 
even this dialogue that I just had with you is about is a trauma informed awareness, right? It's the idea that like um, there there are spaces within our own communities where we're we're also creating blockages, um, sometimes unbeknowingly, um, and that you know, and so it's hard sometimes for us to hold space for people that are suffering and to kind of make it better for ourselves to deal with that. We can ameliorate those pains by making such comments. But in reality, if we're really meeting the person where they're at, we're being there for that person, we're really holding space for what their experience is like without any of our needs being in that story. And and thinking about like, you know, what can I do just to hold space for this person in safety? What can I do to make this person feel um, that they have the ability to speak and speak to their vulnerability and speak to their fears, speak to their shame, speak to their guilt, speak to their anger and rage. Um, and how can I do that in a way that's going to help them to do those things, express those things, but not let that overwhelm them in the work that we're doing together. Um, so if we're not trauma informed in the way that we're opening up the package, then we could be more doing harm. Um, and that's something that we always need to keep in mind is like, you know, I cannot, I'm not to cause harm and, um, and making sure that my motives are directed by that um, so that we don't do that. Wow, I have, I have a lot of thoughts going through my mind right now, just kind of reflecting on both um, what you both shared. I, there's so many parallels, right, between the gender-based violence movement and the HIV movement and kind of the grassroots that started it, started both of them, and how they have evolved over time, right, to become these professional atmospheres. Um, and and. I don't know if we're always taking the time to reflect on on the impact that that professionalism is having on the the people that um, are coming to gender based violence programs, are coming to to you know get HIV support, are you know reaching out to um, you know a uh, food bank, all of these other areas that people are interacting with, um, and it's it's just a lot to like it's a lot to process. I I think that this um, attempt to, um, to really ingrain trauma-informed care and trauma-informed approaches in our work is an attempt to hopefully reach back to our grassroots. But I think there's still a lot more that we have to do and unpack around those, those, um, those issues. And I mean, there, these are conversations that I mean, I'm having with my colleagues and, and whatnot. So I'm, it's, it's nice to see, like, and have this conversation with both of you all too, and see how it's kind of evolving throughout the work. So, kind of semi-related to this, I think it's important that we also kind of reflect on how these approaches um, can have positive impacts on staff um, and, and the work we do, from our own trauma to working with folks. Kind of, what are your thoughts around that? I think it's an interesting question. Because I think that the same principles that you would use for working with a survivor of gender-based violence or a person living with HIV are the same principles that you would use in creating environments for your staff. Um, I'm smiling a little bit. You may hear it in, in my voice because the struggle I hear I have, if I'm being completely honest, as an administrator is one of the, the values that I hold is, yes, I value having a trauma-informed approach for all of those pieces, but I have a duty to ensure that the folks who are receiving the services, <laughs> the folks with the least amount of power... <laughs> that we're um, addressing issues that impact them directly and the trauma that they're experiencing. And so I try to balance um, how can I support like a staff member through, you know, vicarious traumatization or other pieces, but how does that also work if that person's not able to complete their, the duties of their job at that moment? possibly because they're traumatized or they're activated. 
not because they don't have the skill set. And so it's a remarkably easy philosophical question to say that trauma-informed approaches should be implemented across the board for everyone. Um, and to do that in the real world is incredibly difficult from, from my observation. Um, because we all have trauma and when one person's trauma bumps up against someone else's trauma, um, how do you mediate that in a humane, um, fair way? Um, you know, I think Lydia said it when, you know, I think everyone that, everyone that comes to this work pretty much has trauma. Um, and I, I think those of us that end up in human services all end up here because we experienced it as a child and we wanted to make a difference for other children or other people in the world so that they didn't have to suffer the way that we have. Um, again, I will bring up the word antithetical when I think about like the structures that we work in and the work that we're doing. Um, I think that it is a very big challenge to try to be trauma-informed within a system and having, you know, measures that are built upon a business model and we are a human services, you know, provider. Um, those things do not align. Um, productivity is something that is consistently, you know, placed upon us. But again, as a human service provider, that is a difficult um, kind of pattern to to achieve uh, without shutting your heart off. And um, it's it is what we have to do sometimes in order to get through the day. Um, but Again, if we're not able to do the work ourselves, if we don't have the safety to do this work ourselves and feel empowered and feel safe and feel um, that, you know, I am being, you know, considered, I am being thought about, I am being taken care of to the extent that is appropriate for, for our work positions, um, then we're not going to be able to do the work effectively. And, 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 and that also, you know, burnout. And, you know, we our, our field struggles with burnout, our field struggles with high turnover and because of burnout. And it's because, you know, many of us are doing the job of like five people and um, and then more things get piled up on us. And then it's also our own challenges in saying no um, and and stepping up into taking things on, which maybe I don't have bandwidth or capacity for. But I also know that if I don't step up, then who's going to do it? Or the person that I know is going to do it, I know is not going to do a good job. <laughs> and that can be really challenging because, again, then we end up in this space where, as a trauma survivor, I'm going to take everything on my shoulders and I'm going to perpetuate my own trauma, right, in the sake of sacrificing myself for another person because my value is not there. And the more that we're doing this work and the more that I'm learning about how much value I do have, the more I'm able to say no. Um, but it's still really difficult because, again, there aren't enough people that are really doing this work to make sure that the load is carried by everybody. Yeah, that is um, a great point. Um, and it's just so interesting to think about how the same thing that's happening at the local level, up to the state level, up to the national level, like we are all having these same experiences Right. We're all overworked and overwhelmed and carrying far too much with us. You know, I, I was as you were saying that I was laughing as I was like, yeah, and I have five other projects I have to I'm trying to manage um, all in you know the same time. So it, it is um, just something that we we really need to, I think, be reflecting on. And I think also thinking about like the priorities Um you know, where are we placing our priorities? And sometimes I question those things too, of like, is this really where, what I need to be doing right now? Um, or is there, you know, something that's going to be more supportive to, um, a survivor that, that should be taking more of my time. Um, so, and I think Lydia, you had a great point of like working with folks and as a supervisor, kind of trying to navigate the, the, implementation of trauma-informed approaches when you're working with someone that's dealing with vicarious trauma and then, you know, trying to achieve those tasks at hand. But I think that kind of points out that trauma-informed care, these trauma-informed approaches, they're not a destination, right? It is, we are constantly 
hopefully reflecting on things and taking into consideration all these experiences that we've had. Um, so I, you know, don't want people to ever think that, okay, I'm trying to form care. I'm done. Like that's not how this, this works. We have to constantly kind of be evaluating and making changes to our programs and that's okay. Yeah. It's definitely a practice. I mean, I don't know if I said that before is to me, taking a trauma and formed approach is a way of seeing the world. It's a way of doing the work. It's a way of seeing people. It's a way of solving problems. Um, that we will never, well, I don't believe we will ever be able to be, you know, a hundred percent trauma informed, um, because we're human. And also one of the things a pandemic has probably helped us learn is trauma is an ever evolving, confounding, complex, you know, series of events. Um, and we may feel that we've healed from a trauma only to find ourselves greatly impacted by that same trauma um, years after the fact. Um, we may find a new thing brings up something that we didn't identify as being traumatic from our history. And that's for survivors, but it's also for staff. And being able to be okay with knowing that this is less about learning a skill and more about switching your paradigm, that this is something I always have to be aware of when I am engaged in these activities. I would add to that in that while, you know, we're doing all this trauma-informed care and trauma-informed approaches, um, the, all of these things are happening within a very specific space. Um, and that space is around learning, um, you know, certain types of techniques, awareness. But there's a very big fundamental piece that's missing, and that's the physiological piece. Um, because really, in order to make sustainable changes in, in how we process our trauma and how we navigate our trauma, we also need the tools and what's happening in terms of our physiology, the chemicals that are happening in our system, um, and and then being kind of made aware of that body. And it's ironic because, you know, the trauma that we're talking about specifically in this space is really around violence and around the body, right? But the body itself is never fully addressed in this trauma-informed approach. We're not talking about the physiology of the, of the body. We're not talking about the neuro systems that are happening and what happens with that, you know, in terms of trauma and how we also can can participate in lowering cortisol levels or regulating the system. And, and those are the pieces that I think that are missing. But at the same time, like, how can we do that, right? Just because if we open up this box of trauma-informed care and trauma-informed approaches, that alone is really overwhelming for a lot of people. And then on top of it to say, well, we also have to do this. Like, so it's hard because while we've we're ventured into this age of trauma-informed care. Um, but at the same time, this age is super new and it is very limited in the bandwidth in which we can like kind of like apply it. Um, and we really need to figure out a way in which we can incorporate being grounded in our bodies because that is probably the biggest challenge for folks is the physical body itself. And if I can't be in my body and feel safe in my body and my skin and my bones and my in my physical envelope, then how am I going to be able to feel safe on a metaphorical level or a psychological level or emotional level? I there the 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 structure needs to be there in order to hold for the safety of the of the mind. And so I think one of the things that we really need to start thinking about is to incorporate education. Um, in there and also to to start to really align and pair any kind of teachings that we do about trauma-informed approaches and care with the physiological kind of counterpart to it that, that can be done. Yeah, and following up on what Yoshua was saying is I'm not as familiar with the funding sources anymore for, for DV and SA. I kind of dabble in them, but I am aware that some of the funds that have come out of VOCA and some of the other places do allow um, 
for some of like yoga and, and some of the, the those mind body interactions. Uh, on as far as HIV funding, we are not as um, flexible as some of the grant programs that I have seen come out of um, OVW and, and DOJ. And so I would want to encourage folks, um, if you are working for funds that have that flexibility to, to focus on some of those physical elements um, that you do. And so feel free to correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, Ashley, but from the last kind of some of the announcements as I poke my head in and poke my head out, that you all can fund things that, that I can't necessarily fund with Ryan White, people living with HIV funds. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that is a, a great point. There are flexibilities under um, domestic violence, sexual violence uh, funding. Um, under my previous kind of position, I, I did a lot of trainings around trauma-informed care, voluntary services. And we did talk a lot about looking at services beyond I don't know, the the norm, the ordinary kind of services that every DV program seems to have. Crisis line. <laughs> exactly. Crisis line. Parenting classes, just the regular support group, all very helpful. But what's that next step that we take with folks to help them, you know, heal and, and really, I think, reconnect with themselves? Um, so yoga, we talked a lot about like art therapy and writing and cooking and just being, you know, being able to use your hands in different ways. And I think that does help people just start to kind of realize um, their own humanity and then, you know, being in spaces. So I completely agree. That is something we have to be doing more around and, and helping people um, just be I don't know, thinking about their, their whole selves instead of just, you know, we talk a lot about like the, the mental impact um, of trauma on folks, and it is so much deeper than that. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, and I think that kind of brings me to my next question around like this. There's been a lot of like research um, around trauma over the years. And I, you know, in my conversations with folks, I feel like we're kind of moving more in the direction of thinking of um, not just trauma-informed care, but trauma-informed healing. Like, so what is, what's beyond trauma-informed care? So kind of from your perspectives, how do you see this, um, I guess, changing the current narrative on trauma, trauma-informed care? What, what do you think this could look like? I find the question interesting because it could look like any number of things, and that's what makes it, you know, really exciting is it, it probably needs to look like something that we can't even imagine. Um, there are a couple pieces that if I were to kind of, um, you know, try to, you know, to pull out like what is the direction that, that we would be looking toward or the horizon is um, if I'm talking about for people living with HIV, we've talked a lot recently about quality of life. And I think that concept would transcend to gender-based violence also, is it is more about our people experiencing life at a quality that that they feel that they are truly living, as opposed to an absence of violence in their life or an absence of illness, <laughs> are we actually, you know, promoting health and promoting a quality, you know, quality of life in a way that's sustainable? And so if I'm visioning it, I would vision a place where treatment plans and other things are all focused on, have we improved the quality of life <laughs> of the person who's living with HIV or experiencing gender-based violence. Not not what harm have we saved them from or what trauma have we helped them deal with, but, you know, where were we in their journey um, to have a better, healthier, joyful, um, rejuvenating experience in the world? Quality of life is the big one for me as well. Um, you know, I, 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 when I talk about my own trauma experience, I, I describe it through like the idea of the television. 
And that like, you know, in my youth and, and the trauma that I was experiencing there and at home throughout my adolescence, like it was like a, a little tiny black and white TV. And then when I was able to get away from there and go to college, I was able to move into like a big kind of like bigger color TV. Um, but it kind of stayed there and it was just like antenna, no cable. Um, and then as I started kind of like doing my own work and, um, and you know, doing therapy, learning about, uh, you know, art therapy and, and practicing that, then I kind of went into more of like a kind of like flat screen, good stereo set. Now that I'm in peer work and now that I'm working for DOH and, and doing the work that I'm doing with this amazing team that I'm working with, I have like surround sound, Dolby sound, like huge screen and pretty soon I'm going to be moving into VR. Um, and so like, because in VR, I can create anything, right? And so it's that idea of like, if I, if my life has been able to move from those different kind of systems, like those different types of equipment, I've been able now to see in full color. I'm able to hear the whole spectrum. I'm able to turn on and off when I don't want to watch and what I do want to watch. Um, and if I have that level of quality of life, like, uh, you know, I think another thing that comes up for me is a, a thing that we, I just kind of was also gifted with last week. It was the around of like, you know, the lights turning on and off, you know, and how like that's like a trigger on, off, on, off. And that like the work for us is really to think about trying to figure out a way to take that that switch off and put on one of those dimming switches where I actually have control because the one before it was that sensor one that whenever it saw something, it would turn off or and then if it didn't see anything move, it would turn off. So I had no control. The dimmer gives me control. And then the idea came out around the fact that like, well, I'm not going to pay my electric bill anymore, so it's going to get shut off. And I want that because I'm going to connect to solar power, which is sustainable. And so the idea is that I am participating in my trauma responses, that like I am accessing a different level of energy. I'm not going to be the trigger like that, you know, sensor light. I'm not going to be, I'm going to have some choice in terms of dimming and, and brightness and, 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 you know, low light. But I'm also not going to be connected to that hardwired system that has been like maintaining my trauma. I'm realigning with a whole other source of energy. And in order for me to do that, I have to have a quality of life. I have to have the resources. I have to have access. I have to have community. And I have to be able to open myself up to that support. If I can't do those things, then that won't be achievable. Yeah, that, those are some great points and a great analogy um, to really thinking about um, our healing and, you know, even the process of healing and what that can look like. Um, and it kind of brought me to a thought, I had a conversation earlier of, you know, when we're working with folks um, and who've maybe possibly experienced like sexual violence, um, really talking about, you know, it's moving past sexual violence, it's not just like having those conversations around consent and understanding all that, but like helping people identify like, what do they like about sex and, and meeting, kind of reaching those points of like, what do you want? Now, you know, do you want a passionate, fun, enjoyable sex life, you know, and helping people reaching those. And I think part of it is having those conversations and, and moving beyond this kind of one size fits all for folks. Like healing looks different for different folks, just as trauma looks different for different folks. Um, so thank you for, 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 um, for bringing that up. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Cause you just brought it up and, I, and I'm actually thanking you for bringing it up and it is, it is the sex dynamic, right? Um, because like, if we think about like, like a lot of the conversations that I have when we're talking about prevention and STIs and all those things and HIV is like, what happened? What happened in the moment that, that, that person was with a partner and that they didn't feel comfortable in asking around, you know, any kind of like diseases or any, or infections or any of those things like that is such a difficult conversation to have period, but to then like overlap that over a moment of intimacy or the beginning of a moment of intimacy where there's so many things going on in the brain around self-worth value, all the different things. 
uh, desirability, you know, and then like, so fears come up, right? And maybe like, I don't want to ask because then they're going to think that I have it or like, you know, I don't want to ask because I don't want to kill the mood or, you know, and, and all the, like, what happens in those moments where we go from, you know, or, or do we even have that ever of saying like, I know that I'm valuable enough that I need to ask these questions in order to maintain my health and safety. Something happens where that isn't happening. And so my question is like, well, what is it? Because we know there's tons of shame and guilt around sex. We know that um, the you know the like that people are coming to these to our to the our spaces for whether it's STI stuff or HIV stuff and, because they weren't able to have those conversations in those moments. And why? Why weren't we able to say like, hey, I wanna I wanna engage you a conversation around like you know what your status is and you know what are we gonna do in terms of practicing sex and and how do we want to navigate those things? It's very rare to have those conversations, I think, in health, um, and most of the times we're living in fear and shame around it. So how are we ever gonna access a sexual health? The other part is like, where are we learning sex? You know, um, I, no one ever taught me sex. No one ever talked to me about sex. I learned it through like TV or movies or books. And those are all fantastical ways of looking at it. You know, like, and then having to figure the things out on my own and not feeling comfortable asking other people. You know, so again, that leads to me making bad choices. <laughs> and um, and it doesn't support me in a relationship of health with my sex. And so, you know, at this point in my life, I'm literally working on sexual trauma and and trying to figure out who I am because I've been hardwired to be turned on and stimulated by negative reinforcement because of the type of experiences that I've had with sex. And now I'm in a relationship where like I have someone that loves me and cares about me and is thoughtful around me. And that is turning me off. Because my hardwire is towards like abuse. And so having to relearn that, that is so hard. I'm struggling with that, you know, and, and so that's just me. And thinking about the rest of the people that are out there and, you know, working with my peers that are coming from similar spaces around their relationships with their body, with sex, how they feel about it, whether they feel comfortable. Do they feel comfortable asking for what they need? Do they feel comfortable asking what they want? Do they know what they want? Because there's never been that moment of someone allowing them, teaching them how to touch their bodies, how to be in their bodies, how what is pleasurable for them, as opposed to just doing what they think is expected of them. These are all the things that are wrapped up in the balls of like, uh, or the balls, <laughs> um, uh, the, you know, the, the, this complex like quagmire of why we end up being in these positions and situations is because there's a lack of education. There's a lack of fundamental self-love and self-care and self-awareness that had we been privy to that support in youth and development, we may be living in a very different reality. To make it even more complex, I think, it is, I think sexuality and sex are very difficult. And I worked primarily on the SV side of the house as opposed to the DV, sexual violence versus DV. But one of the things I really have to acknowledge here is that for many of the survivors that I worked with when I did direct service who are living with HIV, the, their partners were using their HIV status against them like they were using any other tool. Um, they were using it like the finances. They were using it like the physical assaults. They were using it like emotional assault. And so I, I guess it's, it's, it's the old essay advocate in me that has to say, like for some folks, they may have actually had really positive self-worth and ideas and connection to their sexuality, but when they became partnered with somebody who that partner used power and control <laughs> over those pieces, and then what was really profound to me about working with folks with HIV is because of the role that medication and adherence has in having somebody have healthy outcomes, that when that perpetrator controlled people's meds and access to meds, it was almost devastating to the point that you, you don't even know how to help the person navigate out. So I'm not disagreeing um, with you, but just kind of 
doing that cautionary piece to say like, it is so complex and so individual and um, requires probably a combination of folks who have experience, um, not just in trauma informed, but folks working with HIV and advocates that are deeply rooted in safety planning and all of those things that are what I consider kind of the tenets of gender-based violence. Like I don't see a way of doing the work effectively without bringing both of those expertise to bear, plus the trauma-informed, and then probably with other things that I'm just not mentioning also. Yes, absolutely. And um I mean, that's that's the work that I do every day is is trying to to bridge these gaps because there's there's pieces missing. There are survivors that um, you know they that are not able to access um, supportive services from domestic violence or sexual violence services. There's survivors that are not able to access HIV care. You know, so. How, how do we come together and do this in a better way, in a trauma-informed way, in a holistic way um, that really, um, I, I think ultimately, if we're being honest, will hopefully work towards ending both of these epidemics at the same time. We cannot end one without ending the other. Um, so yes, I completely agree. I mean, we've seen so many um, different methods of power and control over the year. And I think Related to the medication thing is this this conversation around PrEP, um, that survivors, you know, this is an opportunity, you know, for them to access PrEP, but how do you stay safe um, in, in being able to access that and take it on a daily basis or receive um, the injectable PrEP, what that looks like? So, so much to really think about there. Um, but yes, I completely agree that it has, it has to be done in partnership with each other and, and be able to come um, together to support survivors and, and folks that are living with HIV. So I think kind of, uh, you know, related to this too, also is kind of like the success um, of folks, right? So much of our, our grants are so focused on like metrics and like these outcomes and how successful is this and, and whatnot. But I think there's a difference between those metrics and, um, an individual success, if that makes sense. Um, the success that we have is checking a box or the success I have as a survivor, which could literally just be like that I feel safe sleeping with the lights off at night. Um, so kind of the, the question is, how is the success of our work and the success of our clients really dependent on our implementation of trauma-informed approaches? For me, it goes back to the quality of life metrics. And in full disclosure, I am now, you know, I was going to call myself a baby bureaucrat, but I'm, I've done this long enough and I'm old enough that I'm full on bureaucrat. So I, I'm stuck in having those, those outcomes. And so on the living with HIV side, the typical outcome we've had over the years has been viral suppression, which is basically like, if this, is this person taking this medication at the levels that they need to um, to have reduced the viral lo load in their system? And I don't have an issue with that as an outcome. But the more important outcome to me is going back to, like I said, the quality of life. And so it's going back to my funding sources, to the federal government, to places and going like, yes, I will report on viral suppression, but I'm also going to add an indicator for quality of life. I'm going to add some data that's qualitative that has quotes from um, people living with HIV about what their experience is versus just the quantitative. They may not have asked for them, but I happily give them <laughs> um, because I want people to be able I, should, I want the administrators and those folks in the systems to see the people that we were actually providing services to and Ashley and, and to talk about how they are characterizing success. And so I will pull those anecdotal quotes and push them up on reports like this is what this person defined as successful. And yeah, maybe they met your metrics for viral suppression or not, but this is what they, what was important to them. 
Um, in my role as a peer navigator, stepping into that role, I was made aware of like, you know, the, the viral suppression piece being something that I would have to really attend to within the peer work. Um, and I was not happy about that at all. Um, you know, cause like, yes, it, it is amazing to be virally suppressed. It is amazing that we have the opportunity to be able to do that. And also speaking to what you mentioned earlier, Ashley, around prep and like if if I'm in a, a zero discordant relationship um, and ha- being able to have a conversation of like, okay, well, I am taking my meds and, and maintaining a detectable status, but you as a negative partner have the responsibility to be on prep because the onus of health for our relationship falls on both of us as opposed to generally where it was before was like, there was always this terror that the person living with HIV would infect an HIV negative partner. So that like equity is starting to come into the to dialogue and in, in, in terms of relationships, and it's been able to open up some levels of, levels of trust and, um, and co-responsibility that has never been there before. So that like that's super important. But, you know, I get angry when the the proposition is about viral load suppression because I'm like, wait a minute, like it's not just about taking your meds every day. Like viral suppression, it means that all social determinants of need are healthy and in a place where, you know, my mental health can can take my pills every day and I have the food to take it with and I have the 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 food that's going to be nutritious and I have a place to stay and live. I have a refrigerator to keep my stuff in. Like all these like real basic needs that if they're not being met, then viral load suppression is not going to be important to me at all. And we're like, again, this is coming from this like supremacist capitalistic, you know, like um, product oriented or, or, you know, like this is the goal, black and white viral suppression is success, not viral suppression is a fail. And so then like if I have AIDS and I'm never going to be able to get virally suppressed, but I'm able to maintain my T cells and my viral load in a place where I'm not necessarily harming, that's the win. If I'm able to achieve my best level of health and I'm able to consistently keep dropping my viral load, I may not be undetectable, but every time I get my blood work, I'm a little bit lower and my T cells are either maintaining or increasing, that's a win. And so what I need in order for me to fully be able to embrace viral suppression as a person living with HIV, I need quality of life. I need a stability of life to help my mental health so that I can take my meds every day and it not be a burden so that I don't experience pill fatigue so that I can have a conversation with my partner around him being on prep. You know, like all these things take a lot of like, you know, strength or capacity, scratch the word strength. I'm trying not to use it in this context, but like capacity and that capacity can't, can't be there if primary needs aren't being met, secondary needs aren't being met. So to all the people that are like viral load, viral load, you know, like, I'm like, you know, oh, and here's the other thing is that like, what if I can't read? undetectable. And now I'm in this community or this culture where like, if you aren't U equals you, then you're not desirable. So as so then now we're discriminating within our own community of people living with HIV. And so a a brilliant friend of old coworker of mine, Marissa McDowell gifted me with viral load does not equal value. And that was in the in, in kind of response to undetectable equals untransmittable viral load does not equal value. And so best health is value and best health according to what you deem it so. And the other thing I want to contrast that with is a lot of times people have made assumptions um, for survivors of gender-based violence that we know what we want the outcomes for their relationships to be. and. I've always had an issue with, you know, the, the, the age old questions is why doesn't he or she leave or why, why does he or she stay, you know, or if we're talking about sexual assault, like why did they wear that thing, go this place? Okay, so there's, we have all of those, um, those pieces. And I, I think much the same as we're, when we're talking about quality of life, it is important to go back to the, the piece of, 
for the person who's experiencing gender-based violence, what do they view as the outcome that they are working toward? It may not be leaving that partner that we feel is, is abusive. Or even if it is leaving that partner, it may not be on the timeline that we have decided is acceptable. And so I, I, so I think there's m- many, many parallels about um, recognizing what is it that the person would like and where is the next incremental step <laughs> which they would like to work toward. And the most important about that is if that incremental step is not necessarily achieved, that is not a failure. <laughs> that person is allowed to keep trying to do something different, to reevaluate that the, 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 the strategy we should be engaged in is almost like a dance. Your part, you should, you know, you may be leading, but even if you're leading in a dance, you are responsive to your partner to knowing, you know, whether they're receptive to where you're leading or whether they're trying to go someplace else or all of those pieces. I, and not step on their feet. I, I th- yeah, <laughs> I think that that, that is a trauma informed approach, right? The because I think that's the other big thing that happens in our spaces is that like it becomes a black and white, all or nothing thing. Either I'm doing this and I succeed, or I fail, and then I'm I fail because that's part of the narrative that I have around my own mental health or, or value. And like if if it's really trauma informed, it's engaging the person in the dialogue around like, great, you have an idea of what you want to try and you're going to go for it. And if you go for it and it works out great, but if it doesn't, then that's fine too, you know, and, and helping the folks to like have some relief around the choices because so many times we get immobilized by expectation um, and fear of not being able to meet that expectation. So sometimes we either self-sabotage or we just don't try at all. Um, but if we are surrounded with the messaging around that, like we can make a, an attempt, we can make a choice, we can try something. And, and if we didn't succeed in that trying, we got some information out of that and that is valuable too. And then we just try something different. We don't really operate like that as a system. We don't generally have that level of compassion and empathy within our systems to think that way. But that is a trauma-informed approach that helps to support success in trial and error, you know, um, learning from mistakes um, and making a choice that's as informed as possible in that moment for ourselves. Yeah, and I think the other the other piece of that is, you know, when we're working with folks is not just saying here are the choices, but like, let's talk these through. What could this look like? You know, because for some folks, like, they're just like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, haven't had the chance to make choices. So like taking the time to like really think those through with them can be really helpful for them to start feeling like they have the ability um, or capacity to make those informed decisions. And, you know, when you're, once you've coped with trauma, trying to kind of reset those things for ourselves. So sometimes it does, you know, up front, we have to take a little bit more time with people. Um, and I think that's what's so important about trauma-informed approach is it's not just trying to see as many people as possible. It's taking the time with each individual person and, and helping them set their own path um, for for all of this. Um yeah, and, and just, you know, I think about working with survivors, like you said, Lily, Lydia, is that, okay, they have left the the uh, relationship, okay, check, right? That's, okay, great, yeah, that, that part has been met, if that's what their goal was, but what happens if they don't have housing, or what happens if they don't have, you know, any financial means? Like, there's so many other things that, okay, I met the goal once, but because I don't have these other things, my only choice is to go back to my partner, right? So if I'm living with HIV, okay, I'm virally suppressed, but if I don't have housing and I can't take my medication, I'm no longer virally suppressed. So all of these things have to be working in harmony together um, to really, I guess, meet those goals that our funders tend to set for us. So I have one last question um, and it's for Lydia. As someone who has worked in both the anti-violence movement and public health, HIV field, what tips do you have for folks trying to um, traverse these two fields and supporting survivors? 
One of the things I've tried to work on over the years is actual true collaboration between what we typically call aid service organizations, but they might have an, a new name, or and rape crisis center, DV programs, um, because across the states, in, in many of the cities, there's typically, in most areas, a few of each or one, one, one of each. And I've had a really difficult time getting those organizations to collaborate and um, play with each other. <laughs> and I think some of it is because we largely operate in different systems with different funding sources. And so we're not accustomed um, to coming together. And then I think there's another part of it that has to do with the stigma around HIV. And then I think there's this piece around just literally the numbers is like right now, I, I like I, um, my, the team that I have, we administer the state funding for people living with HIV in Washington state. So what that means from like a practical standpoint is I literally know that there are about 15,000 people in Washington state that I am trying to provide services to through those um, aid service organizations and community-based organizations. If I look at the folks of who there are far more who are providing gender-based violence services in, in Washington state, we have, we have no idea. Maybe it's a fifth of the population who might be eligible for those services over the years. And so I recognize that it's really hard for sometimes um, gender-based violence folks to develop these deep, like, understanding of HIV, knowing that it's a small population. <laughs> um, but I really think that needs to happen. And then I think for people living, who provide services, to, uh, case managers for people who are living with HIV or peer navigators, um, they need to understand the basics around safety planning. Um, they need to understand some of the things about the criminal legal system, um, separate from HIV decriminalization laws, but some they need to understand like DV assault laws in, in, in your state. And, and, and so I found it fairly easy to go from one to the other because the core values are the same, but the funding sources and all of those pieces are completely separate. Like, I don't know of any, any funding source that really, you know, dovetails the two pieces. And so my advice would be, if you work for a DV agency, find out what are the aid service organizations in your area, meet them, um, ask them, like, what can we do to provide services collaboratively to that place where there's um, overlap. And I would say the same thing um, conversely, but I'm assuming since it's NNADV, I'm talking to more DV providers than aid service organizations. But I really think that we, we need to recognize that it probably will take both types of organizations to develop some cross-training and expertise in the work that the other does. And not, I'm not asking folks to do more work or, you know, to take on the work of the other type, because I think you can refer effectively, but you do have to know what the options are. I know that question was for Lydia, but I got some stuff to say too. Go for it. <laughs> um, and stuff that we haven't covered, and, and unfortunately, I know we don't have enough time to really go into it. But like, I think there are two other pieces that need to be mentioned in in this work that Lydia is speaking about, and one is social justice and racial equity. Um, that is such a core uh, kind of dynamic in a lot of the spaces that these things are happening in, and the whys, and part of the or part of the whys. And then the other thing is around um, like. Um, 
LGBTQ plus, um, you know, the idea of like the massive amounts of violence and trauma that our trans community and non-binary community are, are, of folks are, are experiencing and the lack of an ability that some agencies have in navigating those waters. Um, so I think it's really important to make sure that while we're, you know, cross hybridizing or weaving, you know, DV or gender-based violence with HIV work, we also have to have that social justice, racial equity work, and um, kind of like uh, identity work um, in the LGBTQ, specifically around um, supporting our trans community and non-binary community, because they are in this space that tends to always be pushed aside or ignored or devalued. And they are one of the most vulnerable populations right now in, in our country that are experiencing these things and not getting the support that they need. So I just needed to put that out there. Thank you. Well, this was a great conversation. I really appreciated talking with both of you today. And I hope everyone that listens, um, you know, got some valuable information from this, um, has some, you know, more things to think about. Um, so thank you again, um, Yoshua and Lydia. Um, I'm sure we'll have more conversations to come on this topic. It's just an ever evolving thing. And again, like I said, it's not a destination, right? We're all on a journey. Um, so thank you to everyone that has listened and um, we look forward to having you join on our next uh, podcast episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and at nnedv.org. Thanks for listening.